I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and hold your place at verse 1. like to begin by thanking Pastor Cody for inviting me today into your church and into this wonderful worship service and thank for thankful also for Pastor Justin for helping me this morning to know what to expect um, I'm grateful to be here and when Pastor Cody asked me to come, we had a discussion on what it was that he would like for me to preach. And in light of the season, this being Palm Sunday, next week being Resurrection Sunday, we settled on me having the opportunity to preach 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great resurrection passage. And so... Uh, it was interesting because in our conversation, he said, well, if you preach on the resurrection, then next week he could go right back to second Samuel and stay with what he's been doing. But apparently that's not going to happen. So you are going to end up sort of with two resurrection messages as I understand it. I could be wrong, but, uh, I want to, for a moment before we read the scriptures, just sort of by way of introduction, mention something. Some of you may recognize me from, I grew up here, I, I graduated West Nassau in 1998, I graduated with Richard, uh, he did graduate, and just just let y'all know, as did I. And every year at the Northeast Florida Fair, our church sets up a booth, and we've done this for the past several years, I don't know how many, five or six years. So if you are a person who frequents the Northeast Florida Fair, you may have seen a booth and on that booth, there is a wooden sign, and ascribed onto that wooden sign is the question, do you understand the gospel? You would be surprised how many people profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, may even be members of a local church, but do not understand the gospel. In fact, it's become one of the most common ways that I begin a gospel conversation. If I'm talking to someone, I will ask, do you, do you attend church? Well, yes, I do. Well, that's great. Do you understand the gospel? You'll be surprised how many times people will, in that moment, be as like a deer in the headlights. They, they, it's as if they've never been asked the question. And then I might even go as far as to say, if I was an unbeliever, how would you share the gospel with me? And then it's often just absolute silence. There is nothing in this world... That we need to be more assured about than the gospel. There are many things that you can be wrong about. I don't know anything about automobile repair. I don't know anything about fishing. I mention only those two things because when I have those issues I call Richard because he seems to know at least about the fishing part. And it's very embarrassing when we go fishing together. He, he, sort of, he like baits my own hook. I'm really bad at it. 
But it's okay to be bad at fishing, even in Callahan. It's okay to be bad at automobile repair. But it's not okay to not know the gospel. And it's certainly not okay to be wrong about the gospel. As I was preparing to come in, I noticed in your Sunday school room, I, I, I had the chance to sit in and hear Richard teach very well, taught very well this morning. And on the table of the Sunday school room, there is a brochure. And I'm assuming this is something that you all wrote and published yourself because your name is on the back of it. And it says in the beginning, it asks the question, what is the gospel? It sounds like a simple question. In fact, it would be easy to assume that we could all answer this question correctly. Sadly, however, that isn't the case. So I was glad to have picked this up because it affirms what I'm saying. It's that so many people say they know the gospel or believe they know the gospel. But when challenged, do you understand the gospel? They find themselves confused or in error. So today we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 to 22. Now that is a little longer than I had intended, but there's an important passage in verse 22 that I do want us to see as it sums up so much of what we're going to say. And after we read this passage, I will pray. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15, this is the New King James translation. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which, I, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also as one born Out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore whether it was I or they so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May we pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word proclaimed. And I pray first and foremost, Father, as I pray always, Lord, that you would keep me from error. For, Lord, I am a fallible man and I am capable of preaching error. And I pray for the sake of my own conscience, for the sake of the hearers, and for the sake of your great name, Lord, that you would keep me from that. Lord, also that as we hear the word today, that the Spirit would be the teacher. That, Lord, that I would vanish behind the word of God, that I would decrease and Christ would increase, and that the Holy Spirit of God would apply this truth to the hearts of everyone here. Lord, for those who believe the gospel, who know it well, Lord, that this would be a reminder to them. And Lord, an encouragement, an edification. Lord, for those who are confused about the gospel, that this might bring correction. And Lord... For those who have not yet bowed the knee to to Jesus Christ, Lord, that today might be a day of reckoning, reckoning of the soul, Lord, that they might face Christ and see him as beautiful, desirable, winsome, and wonderful. Lord, that they would turn from their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, all of this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we begin the sermon, I want to provide a few preliminary points about the subject that we are going to attend. Three things I want you to consider as part of our introduction. This is not the six-point outline that you have in your bulletin, by the way. And And I was told that in the bulletin you were given blanks to fill in, which is wonderful. Uh, I just hope that I make sure to be clear as to what is going to fill in those blanks. Uh, so I'll try to make sure that I do that. But this part is not that. So this is not the fill-in-the-blank portion. The three things I want to say at the beginning are about how important what we're talking about is. Because the first thing I want us to remember is that it is essential that we get the gospel right. It is absolutely essential that we're right about this. I mentioned it earlier. There's a lot of things that we can be wrong about, but this is not one of those things. In the first chapter of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian churches. That wasn't one church. It was a churches in a region called Galatia, which uh, accounted for the churches. If you remember reading in the book of Acts about Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and those, those different churches, those were all in the region of Galatia. And at that time, there were, there were teachers that had infiltrated those churches that had began to teach in those churches that the gospel that Paul had proclaimed was insufficient. Paul had proclaimed a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they came in and said, no, The gospel that Paul has proclaimed is insufficient. You must add to it 
the law of Moses, in particular those laws that most specifically we would call the ceremonial laws of Israel. And among them, the most specific was the law of circumcision. This group that had infiltrated the Galatian churches were called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers went into the Galatian churches and they demanded that if you were going to be a Christian, you first had to be circumcised. Well, the Apostle Paul took up his pen and he wrote what I believe to be most likely his first letter, the first epistle that the Apostle wrote. And he wrote it to the region of Galatia, those churches. And in the first chapter of Galatians, he says this. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Notice Paul is not mincing words. He says, if someone brings a gospel that does not agree with the gospel that you have received, and by Implication, he's saying that you received from me because I received it from Christ. You'll, if you go on in Galatians, he says, I didn't receive this from any man, but I received this from revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what I received and I give to you. And he says, if anyone gives you another gospel, know that they are to be accursed. There is not two Gospels. There are not three Gospels. There is only one Gospel. And it is essential that you get the Gospel right. Notice that this group had not denied Jesus. The Judaizers didn't deny who Jesus was. They didn't deny what Jesus had done. But they added to what Jesus had done the requirement of keeping the law. And Paul says, by adding to the gospel, they have perverted the gospel and they have made it not a gospel. Understand, this is still going on today. There are many people who add to the gospel. There are many people who add to faith in Jesus Christ as salvation. Something that you must do. Something that you must accomplish. Understand that is not the gospel So it is essential that we get the gospel right. Number two, it is essential that we be reminded of the gospel regularly. We are prone to forget. Amen? Think about how many times in Scripture monuments are created and memorials are made and ceremonies are performed. For what reason? So that you will remember the things that God has done. Read the communion table. What does it say scrolled across the communion table? The very words of Jesus Christ. This do in what? In remembrance of me. We are provided by God times of remembrance. And one of the things that we need to be reminded of often is the gospel. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, I preach the gospel every week because every week my people forget it.
We must be reminded. And I'm saying this to you because you may come in today feeling very confident. I know what the gospel is and therefore I'm going to check out and I'm going to start thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. Or I'm going to start thinking about what I'm doing this afternoon or what I've got to do for work this week. Please do not check out. If there's anything you need to be reminded of regularly, it is the gospel. And number three... It is essential that we recognize that the gospel is the overall message of the Bible, not just the New Testament. The gospel is the message of the Bible from the very beginning. In fact, I I know Brother Cody and I were talking, and he even mentioned this, that he'd been talking about this among you. That the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right after sin entered the world. There was a promise from God. When he was providing the judgments on sin, the first judgment he proclaimed was upon the serpent. And in the judgment upon the serpent, we are given a promise. He says to the serpent that the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You remember this? That is called... In theological terms, the proto-evangelium. That's Latin for the first gospel. The first promise of God. That there is coming one who is the seed of the woman who will take his heel and crush the head of the serpent. And what does the book of Galatians say? It says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That he might redeem those who are under the law and give them what? The adoption of sons. You see, that's Christ. And a picture of Christ back in Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 12, when God makes the promise to Abraham. He says, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Later on in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul will grab onto that. And he says, that was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. Because he says it was the gospel that God preached when he says, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Because how are all the nations blessed through Abraham? Through his son. All of the nations are blessed through Christ. What does Revelation chapter 5 say? It says, On that day I looked and I saw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne. And that is a picture of the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will save men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel is seen in the Old Testament throughout the ceremonies, throughout the monuments, throughout the pictures of the high priest and the sacrifices, all the way down pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the whole purpose of the Bible. So again, it is essential that we get the gospel right. It is essential that we be reminded of it regularly. And it is essential that we recognize that the gospel is the overall message of the Bible. So with all that being said, let us now go back and turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 15 and answer the question that we have asked. Well, if the, if the gospel is so important, what is it? If the gospel is so important, what is the gospel? Oftentimes when I talk to people and I ask them what the gospel is, if they've been in church They'll answer like this. Well, the gospel is easy. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
And maybe that's an answer that you have given. And I will agree with you. I do not contend that that is incorrect. That is absolutely true. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But I want to propose to you today that many people do not know how to connect that to how it becomes good news. Because that's what the word gospel means. So if your answer today, if, you, if I were to ask you, do you understand the gospel? And you were to say to me, yes, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. My next question, just so you understand, this is the next thing out of my mouth. How does the death of a Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago affect you? Because that's, people say it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But how? How does his death affect you? How does his burial matter to you? And what is it about his resurrection that has any implication for you? So yes, the answer is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But how does that apply to us? That's the answer that we want to ask today. And we're going to do this in six parts, Lord willing. I'm afraid about time. (laughs) Uh, but here are the six points. Uh, well, actually, you're going to do the whole, the, the, the filling out the blanks. So we'll do them one at a time. Number one, in death, there is propitiation. In death, there is propitiation. Now, the words on the screen, if you need some help with uh, the spelling of it, I know that's not a normal word that we use in our regular vernacular. I'm pretty sure the last time you were sitting at a coffee shop with someone, the word propitiation was not just rolling off of your tongue. So I understand if that is not a normal word. However, around here, I did hear Richard use it in Sunday school this morning. Praise the Lord. It's not an absent word because it is a word which is absent in many churches. There are many churches which do not like the word propitiation. In fact, there are many churches which actually reject the idea of propitiation. You say, really? Absolutely. And I can prove that because later in the service, we're going to sing a song. The last song today, according to the list that I was given, the last song today is In Christ Alone. And In Christ Alone has a verse. It says, for on that cross where Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied. Right? By the way, that's what propitiation means. Propitiation means to satisfy someone who is in a position of authority who has been offended. And by the way, do you understand that your sin is an offense to God? Nobody, I see some head shaking, I didn't get an amen, but okay. You understand your sin is an offense to God. It's not, you know, oftentimes years ago we would use this phrase. We would say, our sin separates us from God. In fact, how many of you ever seen the Evangel Cube? Remember the Evangel Cube? Nobody? Am I the only one who lived in the 90s? Really? Okay, the, the Evangel Cube was a little box that people carried around and it looked like a Rubik's Cube, but it wasn't a Rubik's, it opened up. And it had pictures, and each one of those pictures was meant to share the gospel. It's a fine tool for evangelism. The first picture on the box was a a picture of a light and a picture of a man, and they were separated by a jagged line. And that jagged line was supposed to represent sin. And the first thing that you were supposed to say when you used the evangel cube with someone was, your sin has separated you from God. And then you opened it up, and it showed Christ on the cross and what he did. But the point of it is, your sin has not just separated you from God. 
But the Bible says our sin makes us an enemy of God. Our sin puts us, what the Bible says, at enmity with him. I'll give you a few verses just in case you think I may be uh, expressing this a little too much. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. Romans 8 verse 7. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the natural human mind is set on the flesh. says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to, law, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You see, that's the natural state of man. People tell you all the time, oh, I love Jesus. But they love the Oprah Jesus, not the Bible Jesus. And there is a difference between the Jesus of popular culture and the Jesus of Scripture. And when you begin to describe to them the Jesus of Scripture, oftentimes you will see their hatred begin to seethe. The enemy becomes very apparent when you begin to expose the true Jesus to them. The Jesus who says, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And any man who does not come unto me and bow the knee will find himself in an eternity of hell. You, you tell that to Oprah and see what happens. You go on television and say that and see how popular you are. You hear these television preachers, oh, I don't want to talk about anything negative. I don't want to talk about sin because that's so negative. Let me tell you something. If you don't understand your condition in sin, you don't understand the gospel. And if you're not preaching the enmity that you have between you and God before Christ came, then you do not understand the gospel. It's very simple. And so we have... In this word, propitiation, the idea of satisfaction, God's wrath is upon us. The Bible says the wrath of God is revealed uh, from, uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is all men. All men stand before God in unrighteousness. All men stand before God as sinners and we are at enmity with God. You have committed high treason against the Lord of the universe. By the way, I'm the visiting preacher. I can say it. Get you all offended and get you mad because I get to leave. You stand before God, having broken God's law. And God is a good judge. And a good judge does not look with a blind eye toward those who break the law. In fact, if you went home today and you found that your dear mother had been robbed of her belongings, had been beaten by bandits, and those bandits had absconded with her goods, you would be rightfully and justly upset. And if those men were captured and taken before a judge, and the judge says, I know that you are guilty, but you are free to go you would be rightfully indignant because justice was not done. But you believe yourself who have sinned against God will stand before him having committed high treason against the ruler of the universe and you will be set free on the basis of what? Your own goodness? I hope not. If you're trusting in yourself, you are trusting in the one thing that ain't going to make it. Because by yourself you stand at enmity with God. But God loved the world. And he sent his son. Who never sinned. 
Not even one time. He went 33 years without sinning in thought, word, or deed. You can't go 33 minutes. You can't go 33 seconds. And Christ went 33 years without having sinned in thought, word, or deed. And he laid himself upon the cross. And he gave himself up for us. And he died a substitutionary death where the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And he received in himself that which I deserved. And God was satisfied to receive his punishment in my place. So in death, there is propitiation. Understand, when you say Christ died for my sins, you are saying a mouthful. That is not a little thing. That is a major thing. That is a massive thing. Because our sins are massive. But Christ is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, write that down. Christ is better at being a savior than you are at being a sinner. And he died for our sins on the cross. He paid the penalty that we deserve. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And like I said, there are some churches who don't believe that. In fact, in that song, in Christ alone, there is a, uh, that line... When that song was introduced into a hymnal for a major denomination in the United States, they demanded that that line be removed. They said, we like the song and we like the tune, but we do not believe that on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So would you change it to on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Oh, so sweet. And let me say this, it's true. When Christ died on the cross, the love of God was magnified. It's not an untrue statement, but it's not the point of the song. And the writers of the song said, no, take it or leave it. If you don't want it, you got to take it all or take none of it. And so the hymnal committee chose to discard it. They did not want to sing on that cross when Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. Beloved, can you sing that today? Can you sing that with the hearty amen? Knowing that your wrath, the wrath that you deserved, was taken in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's number one. In death there is propitiation. Number two, in burial there is confirmation. In burial there's confirmation. We say the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. And i got to be honest with you, for a long time, especially when I was younger, I never understood how the burial fit in. Because it seemed to me like Christ dies, that makes sense because he's dying in our place, punishment. And he's raised to show that he has the power, and we're going to talk about in a moment, power over death, hell, and the grave. But what does the burial have to do? Well, here is what it is, and I think it's very simple took me a while to figure it out, but now that I understand, I think it is very simple. The good news is only good news if it's true. Hear that again. The good news is only good news if it's true. And what the burial does is it confirms that he was actually dead. 
You see, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. They were really good at it. They were expert executioners. And when they executed the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew that he was dead. Not only did he hang on a cross for six hours and ultimately succumb to asphyxiation, but after that they rammed a spear through his side which pierced into his heart and the wound bled out, most likely because of the piercing of the pericardium, which is the sac that surrounds the heart, which is filled with a fluid that looks like water. And therefore, when the wound bled out, it bled as blood and water. So he's, he's dead. But then he's buried. And what does the burial do? It confirms the death. It confirms that he wasn't just fainting. There's something called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus just passed out. And then three days later, he woke up and convinced people that he had resurrected. First of all, that don't jive for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is he was beat to a pulp. And he wouldn't have come out of the tomb looking like a raised, glorified God-man. He would have walked out of the tomb, if at all, limping, having lost so much blood, having been malnourished. He wouldn't have looked like anyone's savior. The idea that he simply swooned on the cross is absolutely ridiculous. And the idea that he would have then be able to dig himself out of the grave is equally ridiculous. The burial is confirmation that he was actually dead. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was one of the catechisms that came out of... And by the way, catechisms are not Catholic. Don't let people confuse you. People say, oh, that sounds Catholic. It's not. The, the catechisms actually rose to prominence in the Protestant movement. And were later adopted by the Catholics. Look it up. You'll find out that that's actually correct. Catechisms were used among Baptists, among Lutherans, among Presbyterians. The Protestants used catechisms. And all a catechism is is a question and answer of learning your faith. This is the 41st question in the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this. Why was he buried? Answer. His burial testifies that he really died. Isn't that amazing? His burial testifies that he really died. So in burial, there's confirmation. Number three, in resurrection, there is vindication. Now, the Bible actually uses the word justification. So you could make a little note beside that and say, you could say there's justification. But I don't want you to confuse what happened on the cross where our sins are justified with what happens when Christ comes out of the grave. Because when Christ comes out of the grave, what is justified is our faith. Because it demonstrates that our faith is not in a dead Savior, but in a living Savior. It's vindicated by the fact that everything he said actually was the truth. You understand that what Jesus said was true and it's proved by the fact that he's no longer there in the tomb. Understand that if you go looking for Muhammad, you know what you're going to find? Dry bones in a grave. If you go looking for Buddha, you know what you're going to find? Dry bones in a grave. And you keep asking, I don't care who the religious leader, Joseph Smith... Dry bones in a grave. But if you go looking for Jesus, you're going to find an empty tomb. The empty tomb vindicates that everything he said was true. And through the resurrection, there is assurance of his message. We see this in verse 14, which we read earlier. Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has been raised. And he's still alive today. You understand Jesus is still alive now, right? He didn't raise like Lazarus and then die again later. You ever thought about Lazarus? Lazarus rose and then later had to die again. We all know we got it coming once. He had it coming twice. And so did the widow's son at Nain when he was raised. He had to die again. The little girl, Jairus' daughter, she was raised, had to die again. But Jesus is the only one who has risen never to die again. A glorified body which goes into eternity. One day we will be raised the same. And that's the promise. That's why he's called the first fruits of the resurrection. Because he was raised and so too will we who believe on him be raised in him eternal. And the Bible says that when we see him as he is in that great return, we will be as he is. Not as God, but as glorified. We will be as he is. And also in his resurrection, there is his continued work as a high priest. So you understand, Jesus Christ continues to function as our priest today. What does the Bible say? It says we don't go to priests on this earth. That's not the role of Pastor Cody. That's not my role. That's not the role of Pastor Justin or anyone else. We are not your priests before God. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? The man Christ Jesus. He is our priest. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Because we are going through him and he lives forever to make intercession for those who trust in him. So his resurrection not only vindicated everything he said was true, but it continued his ministry of intercession. And so he continues a priest. The Bible says in the King James Version, he abideth a priest forever. Now, that is enough But I'm not going to stop. (laughs) That is enough to understand the gospel. But I want to show you three additional things. And these will be a little shorter. But these three additional things I want to show you. Because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. And I didn't really talk about the context. And I do apologize for that because I normally would. What Paul is doing is Paul is addressing a problem in the Corinthian church. And the problem is this. There were those who were denying the idea of bodily resurrection. There were those who believed that the body was, was corrupt and the spirit was good. Richard talked about him a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Those who believed that the spirit was all good and, the, and the, the physical was all bad. They were called dualists. Sometimes people refer to them as Gnostics. And Gnostics were a form of dualists. And they would say there's this separation. And when you die, yes, your spirit goes to heaven. But your body goes away and you don't need it anymore. But that's what Paul was trying to say. That's a wrong teaching. The resurrection of the body is actually part of Christian theology. We believe in a resurrected body. There's a painting. It was called The Great Getting Up Morning. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But it was a painting that was done. And it was a painting of a graveyard. And beside all of the headstones, there was a mound of dirt and a hole. And the idea was a picture of that wonderful day when the bodies will come out of the graves. Now, I, I'm sure that's not what it's going to look like, but the picture is still the same. The idea that one day your body will be reunited and it will be glorified and there will be a resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that. 
Paul talks about the, the body going into the ground like a seed and dying and then being raised again to new life and life everlasting. But he bases his entire argument, beloved, on this idea. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. If you want to have confidence that you will be raised, then you need to believe that Jesus was raised. Because if we don't believe Jesus was raised, then we have no hope. And we are of all men the most to be pitied. So with that in mind, I want to show you three additional arguments that he makes. Number four in our line of six is that in witnesses, there's verification. In witnesses, there is verification. You see, Jesus didn't raise to two or three guys in a back room somewhere who easily could have concocted the story or hallucinated the event. Jesus raised to an entire host of people, many of which would go on to give their lives for their testimony in his resurrection. It has been said many times, many people, many people will die for something that they believe is true and isn't. But no man will die for something he knows is a lie. The men who died having seen Christ raised knew he was alive. And they were willing to go to their graves. Not because they heard he was raised, but because they saw him with their own eyes. Over 500 people saw Jesus come out of the tomb, saw him preach for 40 days, saw him ascend into heaven. And many of those people were burned, stoned, crucified, and even fed to wild animals. The emperor Nero was known as a beastly man. And he would take Christians and he would pour oil over them and light them on fire to decorate his garden with their bodies. At any moment, they could have recanted, but they did not. Because they had seen the risen Christ. They knew he was alive. Number five. In scripture, there is affirmation. Notice what Paul says when he's giving the gospel. He says, in death there is, he says, what? He says, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised, what? According to the scriptures. Why does he keep pointing back to the scriptures? Because that is where our trust lies. Paul was saying, everything that happened to Jesus was prophesied. Isaiah 53 talks about him coming and making that substitutionary death. The Bible says on him, the wrath of God came. That's in Isaiah 53. You've you've all heard the verse. By his stripes, we are what? And by the way, that healing is not always physical. In fact, that's not even what that's about. The healing in Isaiah 53 is not about physical healing. 
It's about the fact that Christ took the punishment that we deserve and through him, our sins are forgiven and we are healed of our broken relationship with God. By his stripes, we are healed. We see throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 22 references the piercing of his hands and his feet, the casting of lots for his clothing. Psalm 16 verse 10 promises that the Holy One will not see corruption. And there are also several references to his eternal kingdom. He is the great son of David who will come and sit on the throne of David forever. This is why we say knowing the gospel means knowing God's word. How do we know what the gospel is? We know the gospel because the Bible tells us so. Don't ever be embarrassed to say that, by the way. People, I think, have gotten away from that. Why do I believe this is true? The Bible says so. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is the truth. It is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of the living God. Do not give up your Bible when you are sharing your faith with someone. They'll say, no, you set down your Bible and let's go to a neutral place. There's no neutral place with a man who is at enmity with God. And you cannot have a neutral conversation with someone who is under the wrath of God. You must show them the word of God and make them accountable to it. God is not in the box and them be the judge. They are in the box and God is the judge. And they must see that they are standing before his word, not the other way around. Men are not the judge of this word. God is the judge of men by his word. It's a bigger difference, very big difference. So I say in scripture, there's affirmation. That's a whole other sermon and I won't start over. But in scripture, there's affirmation. Finally, number six, in Christ, there is representation. Look with me at verse 22. Last thing, last thing. In verse 22, it says this. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I asked you earlier, how does the gospel apply to you? This this verse is the answer. This verse is the answer. How does the gospel apply to you? Because the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he was raised according to the scripture. How does that apply to you? Here's how it is. Very simple. You were born a son or daughter of Adam, our first parent. And Adam, when he sinned, he sinned on behalf of us all. You say, that doesn't sound very fair. Well, understand this. When we talk about representation, we all understand what representation means. Because we live in a representative government right now. We have leaders above us who represent us. And guess what? If the president and Congress say we're going to war, guess what? We're all at war. Because we have representatives that make decisions that affect all of us. Right? That's called federalism. And that's the idea of a federal government, a representative government. Well, the Bible has a doctrine of federalism as well. And this is the doctrine that Adam represented all mankind when he took from the tree and he ate of its fruit. Because his sin not only affected himself, but it affected all of us. You ever wonder why there's never been a person other than Jesus Christ who didn't sin? Have you ever ever met somebody who wasn't a sinner? Stand up if you're not a sinner. I'm tempted to sit down right now. Because I know I am. Why is sin universal? 
Why has sin touched every man? The Bible tells us. For by one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men. Because all men sinned. How did all men sin? All men sinned in Adam. When he sinned, it affected all of us. And we inherit that corrupt nature. So every man is born under a banner. And the banner is Adam. And the banner of Adam could even say the banner of death. But there is another banner. There is a greater banner. And it is the second Adam. The Bible calls him the last Adam. Did you know that? That the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam? Because there's only two. The first Adam came death. But through the last Adam came life. And Jesus came into the world to be the representative for everyone who believes in him. So now you are faced with this. You are either under the banner of Adam, which says death, or you are under the banner of Christ, which says life. And the Bible says, choose life that you may live. And that's what we place before you today. We place before you an opportunity to recognize where you are because you're under one or the other. You are either still in Adam or you have repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus and you're in Christ. Beloved, there's no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There is no third way. There is no split in the middle that you can go up the center. No, you can't ride the fence. You're either still in Adam or you have repented of your sin and trusted and you are in Christ. Where are you today? Beloved, this is the most important thing you will ever answer. Most important question you will ever be faced with. Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? The Bible says in Adam all die. But in Christ all will be made alive. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to hear it, to be confronted with it, and to face the reality. And the question, one, do we understand the gospel and do we understand how it applies to us? Lord, I pray that today's message has been clear and I pray that you will use it to draw people unto yourself. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.